Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown, another episode with me, Rhea Wong, your host. So today I have Tasha Anderson, the founder of the Charity CFO, and we are going to talk today about how to train your board on their fiduciary responsibilities. Now, I know some of you might think it is not the sexiest topic, but guess what? This is the duty of your board. So Tasha, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure. This is actually your second time around, so you're a return guest. So for those who missed your first interview, tell us a little bit about who you are and what the charity CFO does. Yeah, so I'm Tasha Anderson. I am a longtime nonprofit enthusiast. I've done several different roles within this space. I started as an auditor working in public accounting for many years. So this whole idea of board responsibility and best practices is right up my alley. I also was a CFO of a nonprofit and they were about $11 million. So pretty large organization. So I come with a lot of operational experience as well. So on this particular topic, it was one of those things where I wish board members would do more of this and maybe do a little less of that, right? So I can share a little bit of my thoughts and experiences there. And four and a half years ago, I started my own accounting firm. So we're a boutique accounting firm. We only work with nonprofit organizations. We work with them all over the country. And really our target audience is generally that small to mid-sized nonprofit, right? Looking for some additional financial thought leadership. And I started it because everyone listening is likely involved with the nonprofit space in some capacity or another. And I think everybody kind of knows what a talent shortage there is in general, but particularly in the accounting space. And people that might do accounting, but don't necessarily know the nuances of nonprofit accounting. So my website says I do accounting services for nonprofits, but I like to joke and say that my real mission is to create that next generation of accounting professionals that really understand and are committed to working in the nonprofit space. So it started with just me and now we have a team of 11 and that's all we do is nonprofit accounting, monthly accounting work. That is amazing. It's so funny you say that because my mission is to turn everyone into a fundraiser. (laughs) So I I feel like I'll teach them and bring the money in and then you can teach them how to manage that money. That's right. That's right. So let's start there because I do think that's interesting. So in my experience, when you have board members, they generally tend to come from a corporate background. And so they may understand corporate finance or corporate accounting, but nonprofit is a different beast. So can you walk us through the big picture? Like how are those two things different? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for board members to really wrap their heads around is about the fact that in a for-profit business, the revenue that you earn, whether it's a service you offer in a particular period or a good that you sold within a particular period, is generally recorded as revenue in that particular moment. You receive those funds, you can spend them however which way you feel like it, and you recognize the revenues and the related expenses all in one period. The nonprofit space, I think the largest pickup that people come into is the fact that we know that we get gifts and we may not have received the actual cash, but we have to recognize the revenue in the year in which it was promised to us, knowing that we likely have to spend it not only on a very specific purpose, but also maybe in a future date. So explaining to a board or a finance committee, the resources that we should have available for the program that we've laid out over the next 12 months and people are planning for their next fiscal year, if you're on a calendar year basis, And explaining to your finance committee and your board, this is the things that we've committed to doing and these are the resources that we have available. That is a big disconnect, I think. Working with more of a cash basis versus accrual basis accounting, not to get too much into the accounting jargon, but trying to communicate 
all of the things that we've committed to, what resources we have available, and what that looks like. And that doesn't always look well on a profit and loss statement. It might show this year we've made a lot of money and next year we're projecting to lose a lot of money. And internally, as a nonprofit leader, we're looking at regardless of when revenues or expenses are recognized, we have a commitment and we have received a gift to spend this way over this period of time that don't always align with financial reporting periods. And that I think is the biggest source of confusion for boards, fundraisers, finance committees, uh, funders even, it's quite confusing. Yeah, it's super confusing because I feel like I was always referring discussions between my finance department and my fundraising department because they wanted to recognize a gift in that particular year. The books said something differently and there were kind of competing motivations because obviously the fundraisers wanted that number to be as high as possible, but Mm -hmm. it could only be recognized like either time restriction or project restriction. So the other thing is, I know that there's different terminology between nonprofit finance and for-profit finance. Can you walk us through some of the terminology, which may also be confusing for some folks? Yeah, I think it's confusing. There are a couple different sources, I think, of confusion. I think on a very foundational level, the technical terms of what the for-profit world would call a balance sheet or profit and loss statement or income statement, they use different words in the nonprofit space. They by and large mean the same thing. And oftentimes when I'm talking with my clients, I'm communicating in the way that they understand. So we call a balance sheet a balance sheet. In the nonprofit world, technically it's called a statement of financial position. In the for-profit world, you have a profit and loss statement or oftentimes called an income statement. I call it an income statement or a profit and loss because that's what makes sense to a lot of the board and the finance committee. But outside stakeholders, your auditors or your funders would call it something like statement of activities. By and large, we're talking about the same thing. The one differentiation between those two reports and why they're called different things is simply around this whole net assets, which is essentially the equity of a company. But for the nonprofits, it's just considered some accumulation of surpluses or deficits over a period of time. So it's called net assets. And as you know, they have restrictions or not. They don't have restrictions. And so we have to keep track of what equity have we accumulated over time that we've earmarked for a certain purpose and what equity that we've accumulated over a certain time that we can do whatever we want with it, right? And that's the biggest confusion as well. And primarily the differences in terminology on a kind of a face value basis. And then of course, further source of confusion, the accounting rules for nonprofits are a little different than the for-profits. Primarily around this idea of revenue recognition, when do you record the revenue and when is it actually spent? So oftentimes you have revenue in one period and you have the expenses in the other period. Kind of going back a little bit to what we were talking about before, you might have your banker wants you to show that you're operating with a surplus. Maybe you have a loan and they want to make sure you're sustainable. They want to show net income or some sort of surpluses, right? That they're not investing in a sinking ship or they don't have some sort of loan liability out there. Your program folks need to know how much money are you supposed to spend to meet these particular outcomes. Maybe you have a restricted gift. Right now we have a lot of individual assistance grants given for people in response to economic downturns or COVID or or other natural disasters. They have to spend it in a very particular way in a very specific timeframe. So they have their own set of goals. The fundraising department has a very specific dollar amount that they're required to raise. And they want to count, to your point, all of the things that they can to apply towards that goal. So you have all of these individual people ultimately after the same thing, but interpreting the data completely different. Uh, And they have different objectives. And that's a huge source of confusion for people. So not only do you have internal confusion, but we have confusion on the outside with funders, lenders, 
board members, but to make things even more complicated, you have your set of rules for your audited financial statements if you're getting audited or what they call generally accepted accounting principles. And those are what I call like the accounting gods. They're the people that make up all the rules on how we have to record things. That is different than the IRS. The IRS has their own set of rules for what they like to include or not include or how it has to be presented. So oftentimes you'll have in the same year a financial statement that does not match what's on the 990. And I think people get confused by that thinking there's a clear error, but there are certain things that the IRS does not allow you to include. Again, further confusion. <laughs> and I've been in different funding meetings with either board members or CEOs of a nonprofit and people ask the question, are we supposed to use our 990 numbers or are we supposed to use our audited financial statement numbers? And people that aren't informed of those differences kind of look at them like they're lost because they should match in theory, but they don't. And that's where all of these different sets of rules and all these different uses of the data just creates a lot of confusion. And I've talked a lot about this buzzword of transparency and people believe that nonprofits aren't transparent enough. And I actually think that maybe even in some ways we're a little overly transparent in the way that we have to present the same data in different ways to different sources that create just mass confusion of no fault or intention necessarily of the nonprofit. There are some outlier cases, of course, but by and large, they try to be as transparent as possible. And we're not even talking about other things like annual reports or general marketing kits that they might share with the public that might have information displayed a little bit different way. So it's a really difficult thing to navigate for many people. I want to talk about this because I think we have this idea of like the numbers don't lie. And actually I had a CFO who is very experienced and I said, what do the numbers say? And she looked at me, what do you want them to say? And I was like, what do you mean? They're numbers. They don't lie. But to your point, it really is about how you're presenting them and what numbers are looking at under sort of what gap principles and so forth. Yeah. So can you walk me through a little bit about the proper altitude for your board? Because in my experience, there are kind of two camps here. You have the board members who like look at a balance sheet and their eyes glaze over and they're just like, okay, well, whatever the finance committee said. And then you have the finance committee folks who are way too in the weeds. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can give us some mm -hmm. thoughts about how do you get them at the appropriate level of oversight that's not too in the weeds, but not too sort of big picture that they're losing sight of the details. I think the first step on how to do that is coming up with really clear expectations for what the board members, specifically the finance committee, is responsible for doing and objectives that we want them responsible for, and then including that in the board training. Because I've actually been part of board training before, not as a board member, although I've done that as well, but educating the board on this is what we need from you as a board member that will ultimately join the finance committee and being really clear about what those expectations and almost have a job description to say, these are the things that we want you to be involved in at the appropriate level. And then they have a really clear understanding of what those expectations are. And the truth is, I think it's confusing for board members because you'll have one organization that's really lacking on the infrastructure. They just don't have the administrative capacity to develop their own budget or develop their own accounting system or manage their own finances that they rely too much on a volunteer board member for that role. And then in another situation, you have a nonprofit that is very stable, has that infrastructure, and then the board members overstepping their bounds. So I think that's a little bit of the challenge. And I've experienced that in my role as a board member in different ways. But I think some of the things that a board member should be involved, and I kind of have like a top 10 list, 
and really starting even at some of the more foundational things uh, for the smaller organizations that are getting started and they don't really have a good sense of what a board member should be doing. But I think this is a good checklist for even larger, more sophisticated nonprofits that need to reevaluate what their board members should be doing. And we talked a little bit earlier about just the compliance piece. I mean, really understanding what a nonprofit is subject to from a compliance standpoint at a federal and a state level, it sounds very basic, but the board needs to have an understanding. Are we subject to an audit? Are we subject to state filings, local filings? Certainly they need to know that we have to have a federal tax return done every year, unless you're house of worship and you have a religious exemption and that's a separate issue. But understanding what does a nonprofit have to adhere to from a compliance standpoint, and more specifically, as we get new contracts and we grow in complexity and size, asking those questions if we're taking out a loan, does that now trigger us to require an audit? Asking those questions and then making sure that the nonprofit is doing those things, I think is really important. But then do we have the proper internal controls and systems in place to successfully complete that? In other words, do we have even the basic paperwork maintained? Are we maintaining a document retention policy? Are people keeping receipts? And again, this is at a very foundation level. Presumably they would be asking questions about, well, is there some sort of internal controls going on? Who's signing checks? Just to have a good sense. And frankly, most nonprofits or all nonprofits should have some sort of policies and procedures or some sort of internal control narrative just to say to the board, this is how we handle the basic functions of our accounting. And at a minimum, a nonprofit should be sharing financial reports every single month with the finance committee. And they should also be including an analysis between what's actually going on and what's going on with their budget. So management of the nonprofit, are they doing what they said they were going to do? And if not, let's dig a little bit deeper into understanding why. This is where we get tricky. And I think one of the points of this conversation, I've been in board meetings before where we talk about a $250 variance on office supplies negating the fact that we are only at 50% of our fundraising goal, which equates to a couple hundred thousand dollars. How can we stay focused on the big items that are really instrumental to the success of this nonprofit and not get into the weeds, as you mentioned before? But keeping those financial reports high level enough at the appropriate level so that the eyes and attention are focused on the things that I think really matter. And really, they should be involved on budgeting. So understanding all the different components of budgeting, and you can probably appreciate this part, when we're talking about fundraising or revenue generation, knowing and having faith that the nonprofit actually has a clear plan for how they're going to get those dollars. Have you identified specific donors? Do you have specific budgets for these fundraising events you're having? Do you have signed contracts? Do you have a plan to actually execute the contracts? Do you have enough people to deliver the services? How are you actually going to get this money? I can't tell you how many board meetings I've sat in when we have a fundraising goal and it's like, well, more than what we've done last year and we're just feeling good about it. And really, I know because I help with the budgets, we know how much money we're going to spend at a bare minimum. And we know roughly what we've been fundraising and we're just going to hope and pray that we can make it work. Uh, and that, honestly, that's what happens a lot of times, unfortunately. Uh, so really asking a lot of questions about who's involved in the budgeting process. So for me, as the CFO for many clients, I explained to the board what the process was that allowed us to get to this budget. Who's involved? What inputs? What did we look at? What information did we pull together so that they can have faith and confidence that we have done our due diligence in getting all the information? So understanding what the budget process looks like is super important. 
Understanding again, going back to those contracts, if they know they've just signed a big federal contract, what has the organization really committed to? Do they have to use their dollars a specific kind of way? A lot of times nonprofits get restricted funds and there's really no rule against depositing restricted funds into a bank account, being held responsible for spending dollars in conjunction with those contracts. But what ends up happening is they deposit everything into one bank account, they spend it on operations, even spending those dollars are restricted for a purpose. And then when it's time to deliver whatever it is, they get into a tough situation financially because they don't have enough cash to pay for the restricted items, whatever that might be, or the program. So if a nonprofit has no, board has no idea, hey, we have $200,000 in the bank, but we have contracts that say we have to deliver $300,000 in these specific services, you're now what they call underwater. You borrowed against yourself to pay for operations. And a lot of times board members have no idea what we've committed to. They have no idea that that $50,000 that we received and spent on payroll is actually supposed to be spent for a needs assessment and a consultant. They have no idea. They have no idea. And so not having that information is really important. And I've worked with a few churches that have received a lot of restricted funds. And over time, they've spent those funds on operations. And if somebody came back and said, I want to now build that memorial garden, there's no money to actually do it. So let's talk about how the sausage is made. I have an MED. Yeah, I mean, like we've played the shawl game, right? You're like, okay, I know that this gift is coming in. It's restricted for this, but guess what? I have payroll due next month. And so I guess I'm wondering, as a board member, how do you know, really, what is that level of transparency around <laughs> restrictions? Because frankly, like I'm writing the grants, I'm talking to the donors, I'm signing the contracts. And so obviously on some level, like I have to be, as the executive, have to be able to have that level of transparency with them. And then on the other hand, the next thing I want to talk about is engaging boards in revenue generating. I've heard lots of people talk about that their boards aren't involved in fundraising, which obviously is the second part of balancing a budget. But to this first point around restrictions and like fungibility of money, can you say a little bit about how do you prevent that? Yeah. Well, the easiest way, I think, it kind of goes back to your accounting. Your accountant can set this up to easily track what are the remaining balances you owe for whatever the restricted purpose is. And if they're not able to do that, get a second opinion because it can be done. We do it all the time. Very simply, what you do is you take your cash balance, what's in your bank account, and you look at what is in this temporarily restricted balance. So if you have $100,000 in cash and you go down to the end of your balance sheet and it shows $200,000 in restricted assets, means that you owe somebody $200,000 of something. You only have $100,000 in the bank. So you have to be able to reconcile between those two things. So it's a really simple formula. So as a board member, just looking at those two things, how much cash do you have and how much do you have committed for a very specific purpose? And are you upside down there? And oftentimes not, but sometimes, yeah. And there might be a reason for it. I don't want to get too much into the accounting jargon, but at least having that understanding of why are those two things different and understanding what's happening there. So I think at a very foundational level, it sounds very complicated what I'm saying, but it's really just comparing those two line items to see, do we have enough cash to meet those obligations? And if not, we have to come up with a plan. And I think the best advice I ever received about finances and being a board member is if you have a question, ask, because I think so often board members are so scared about appearing dumb or whatever that they don't ask the question. And like they say in school, if you have a question, other people probably have the same question. 
Yeah. And I think what's good for you to provide a board to keep them from getting into the weeds is giving them an executive summary. We do that with all of our clients. So we have the financial reports, the numbers that people glaze over and they get confused and then they kind of shut down and don't ask questions to your point. What we do is we provide the context, the story behind the numbers and really spelling out some of the things that are on our radar and maybe some key benchmarks. Like I talk about cash a lot because revenues and expenses are great, but if you don't have any cash, it doesn't really matter. So we talk about very specific benchmarks that we want our board to manage and hold us accountable to. So we talk about different variances. We're uh, exceeding our goal because of these few things. We're under our goal and these specific things. And they can ask more educated questions on, well, you've been underperforming with your events. How are you going to make up that deficit? As opposed to if they just looked at revenue, they didn't really understand the composition of each one of these line items on that report, they wouldn't be able to ask those questions. But when you put it in a narrative format, that tends to drive a lot more conversations than just simply giving the numbers and the reports. Yeah. I love a clean executive summary for sure. So there are lots of questions coming in, but before we get there, I just want to talk about involving board members on the revenue generating side, because I feel like I've certainly been in meetings, the annual budget approval meeting where they're asking lots and lots of questions about the expense side, but somehow (laughs) they aren't really getting as involved on the revenue generating side, particularly when it comes to like two line items in particular, I would say the board contribution line Mm -hmm. and the individual contribution line. So I'm just wondering if you could walk me through any training or guidance that you offer board members around their fiduciary responsibility to also help the organization fundraise. Yeah, that's a great question. And you probably know every nonprofit operates a little differently on their approach. I think that that's something that a nonprofit really needs to think about when a board member joins the ways in which they expect board members to support. And again, putting that in the board training to make that really clear. And some of the things that I've worked on with my clients is really defining what that contribution looks like, not just in dollar amount, but here's an example. I have one client whose board members tend to donate a lot of in-kind things. And the in-kind services or goods may not necessarily be something that the organization would have been trying to purchase otherwise. So they're just donating. For example, they have a parade and they let the organization borrow some limos for the parade. We would have still had the parade had we not had the limos and they valued it at whatever their board contribution level was, let's just say it was like $2,500. Well, there's a point where we need cash to operate. And so really defining what kind of contribution do you want your board to be giving and what is the expectation for them to bring new donors to participate in so many different fundraising events and really being clear. You have different board members that are very well connected and they can bring other well-connected people that have sources of means and sources of money, right? You have the check writers a lot of times and you have the doers. So people that roll up the sleeves and really help get the work done. And then you also have those that write the checks. And so really, what are those expectations? What is the involvement? And truly, even as something as simple as being involved in meeting with potential donors, having board members present at those events. For example, I've done a lot of United Way visits. I've been on both the allocation panel. I would interview nonprofits. And then I was on the receiving end of those interviews. And having board members involved enough in the organization to speak to potential donors about that, whether they can bring donors to the table or they can at least be involved in the conversations. All of that is really important to spell out, um, I think, in your initial board training. 
make that really clear and have a really clear system for holding people accountable to that. So if there's the minimum contribution that a board member must make in way of a cash donation, making sure that there's a level of participation. And as you know, Rhea, like that's asked a lot on grant applications. What percentage of your board contributes to your nonprofit? Because if your board members aren't contributing, they have to ask, why should they? And so other people that have started looking at employee giving and all those other sorts of programs, but for sure with the board and spell out what those expectations should be. And like I said, something that people don't think about the types of gifts that you're trying to get from the board. Okay. I have one last question before we open Mm -hmm. it up. So this is kind of a champagne problem, but year after year, we always try to make sure that we have some kind of surplus at the end of the year, right? And so over time that accumulated. And I'm just wondering in your estimation, is there a point at which too much surplus or too much reserve is too much? Because in my mind, I was was like, more is better. Mm -hmm. You never know when there's going to be a rainy day. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally, especially with foundations, they would look at our balance sheet and be like, well, you have over a million dollars in the bank. Do you really need our money? Wondering if you could speak to that issue. Yeah, I can, because I actually had to write a new policy in response to a United Way complaint that we had too much money. So I can speak to that really well. Benchmarks would suggest, and when I talk about benchmarks, I'm talking about charity watchdogs. I'm talking about the Better Business Bureau, Charity Navigator, pretty savvy funders that might want you to have some level of reserves to make sure they're not a sinking ship, right? They're not investing in a sinking ship. And those benchmarks, United Way, in addition to some of the other ones I mentioned, will generally suggest somewhere between 25 to 75% of your operating budget in reserves. There's a couple different confusing formulas for how to compute that, but just let's go with 25 to 75%. That said, there are some situations where you might feel like that's not enough money. And here's a here's an example. I used to be a CFO of a youth services organization that had group homes for children that had very acute medical needs. There were no foster care options for these children, and there were no other placement options. If for some reason the state money dried up temporarily or long term, we certainly couldn't just move these children somewhere else, right? And we had a commitment to the children and we wanted to make sure that in the event of loss of funding, we had enough money to contingency plans to try to supplement. So we made an argument that rather than the 25 to 75% range, that we were trying to keep 150% of our operating budget in reserves, which is quite a large dollar amount. If you're talking a $6 million organization, that's a substantial amount of money that's kind of you're hoarding somewhere. Now, that is because the cost of care was somewhere around $8,000 per month per child. Like that money can go pretty quickly if we stop bringing in any revenue. And it might take nine, 12, 18 months to find a new home for this child. And we had like 25 children. So it's not a small problem to solve. So there are cases that you can make a strong justification for why you have that policy. And really, no one is really going to penalize you if you have a high operating reserve policy, you just need to have a policy and you need to be consistent with it. So if you don't have any policy at all, think about developing one. And if you get to a point, which is what we did, I think our policy was like 100%. And then the United Way kept asking, why are you higher than what your policy says? Then you reevaluate the policy and you change it. <laughs> but you need to have a good justification for it. And you can address those issues in the operating reserve. Great. All right. I'm going to open it up for questions. People are coming in hot and heavy. So Kev, your questions, please. 
Sure, thanks. I'll ask the first one because I think you just addressed the second one in terms of reserves. The only bit there is like how long it takes to build that up. If you were going for say 50% of operating, you're not going to do it in one year. It's going to take a while. So I guess to a certain extent, your policy is aspirational. Yeah, that's a tough one. I usually recommend to my clients to always budget a two to 5% surplus at the end of each year. Really not necessarily That would be great if we could hold on to it and accumulate it over time. But especially now, there's a lot of wild cards out there. And then another way people can accumulate that reserve is through this idea of depreciation. So for example, I have one client who has a lot of depreciation expense. Some people don't include that in their budget because it's not actually cash that they're spending. But if you include it as an expense line item that you have to fundraise for, then by including that in your budget and hitting a balanced budget every month, every year, I'm trying to not get too in the weeds with technical stuff, but over time, you're going to be able to accumulate cash for that line item, um, which could be substantial for some clients. I have some clients that spend $200,000 a year on depreciation, even though it's a non-cash item, which means in theory, we should be accumulating $200,000 a year of, of cash to help replace the capital items. It's a period. Right. Is that really the only way to do reserves as part of your budget, if you will? Yeah, I think for organizations that are just getting started, I think it's a great approach to plan on how do I get to at least 25% to start, and then how do I have a plan to get there and recognize that that dollar amount for your budget, your reserve, that formula changes every year as your organization gets bigger. So it's kind of a game of like cat and mouse constantly trying to chase after something, but definitely build in a surplus. And I think from a donor communication, which is I think where your conversation got started, to have a good well thought out response to why you're budgeting in a surplus and yet you still need their support or why you consistently generated surpluses, but you still need their support. And that's really around reinvestment into programming, expansion of programming. And we all know there's things that we want to do to enrich the program that people aren't just going to pay for. Yeah. You know, showing prudent financial management. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, we've got Takesha, who has a really good question about startups. Takesha? Hello, everyone, and thanks, Rhea, for doing this, as always. I'm starting up a nonprofit. It's going to be super small. However, I want to do everything by the book from day one. So it'll be me as president, a secretary, and a treasurer, because I have to have those other couple of board members. So I'd like to set up effective and proper internal controls and policies and procedures again from day one. Also wanting to add in that I will be doing the majority of the work. However, I understand that when it comes to finances, that it's appropriate and recommended and probably a legal thing that another person be involved in the finances regarding any banking, deposits, signing checks, things of that nature. So just wanted to know if you had any recommendations regarding or tips for anyone who's in a startup situation. Yeah, I would say this too, just for your protection as essentially the only person doing a lot of this work. I think from a very foundational level, I would get a cloud-based accounting solution. You can get QuickBooks online. I think you can go to TechSoup which is a software distribution for nonprofits. The software solution is really inexpensive or free. In many cases, I think you can get a subscription to QuickBooks Online for very inexpensive and or free. I'm not entirely sure. Make it a cloud-based solution. And if nothing else, give access to your banking, give access to your QuickBooks file, even if it's read-only access so nobody goes and messes with things, but give access to another board member. 
to your treasure, for example, so that any time they could review or look at any of the transactions that you're doing. And I would probably also have a threshold for the dollar amount in which you can sign a check or you might need multiple signatures. That's something that's helpful. Logistically, that's kind of obnoxious. So I would talk with your bank to see if there's a way that somebody can approve your checks that you write or bills that you pay through some sort of online banking platform. I think the easiest way to do it is try to set up a lot of your expenses probably initially will be maybe through a debit or credit card and then have a board member review the transactions to make sure that they seem appropriate and within reason and just really making sure that there's transparency and somebody else is looking at what you're doing and they have access at a very foundation level as a startup. And then you can continue to add on from there. But really the biggest issue is, is it clear what people are paying for? And what I do is use QuickBooks Online and there is a way, and you could YouTube search videos on how to do this. It's really simple. It's another reason why I like QuickBooks. There's lots of free training out there for you. But I attach documentation to every transaction. So if a board member wanted to go in and said, why did Takesha go to Target? What was that for? Was that a personal charge or something like that? They can click on the transaction. They can actually see the receipt that you purchased they can say, okay, that's a good charge. And I think that just protects you. And a lot of people struggle with keeping that documentation. I've seen horror stories that are completely innocent in nature at the end of it, but from a professional reputation that gets questioned if the paperwork isn't kept in order. And that's the biggest piece of advice, just keep your paperwork organized. What I do, I use it for my own business. I take a picture of whatever I'm buying, whether it's gas or the coffee shop. I take a picture of it and I upload it on this app called Receipt Bank and you can make Receipt Bank talk to QuickBooks, which basically means every time you spend something, you can say, this is what it's for. It has a copy of the image and that software will automatically put that image into your QuickBooks. So your board member, I think they should do that once a month, go in and review what transactions happen during the month haphazardly select a handful of transactions to make sure they seem appropriate and not just appropriate, like because she didn't spend money on refurnishing her house, but is there documentation to substantiate that charge? Because that's where you get in trouble with people accusing you of stealing money or the IRS comes in and says, this isn't really a nonprofit. It's because people don't keep the documentation and people think, well, they have the IRS rule of $25 or less. You don't need a receipt. I'm telling you from a nonprofit perspective and using the public's money, always have a receipt. And if for some reason you can't get a receipt, at least do your best to write a memo or this was $4 for parking and the parking meter didn't give me a receipt or something. I'm making something up. That has happened to me before. But always have some sort of paper trail for whatever you spend. So to just zoom out on this a little bit, are there <laughs> any resources that you would recommend as far as setting up you know, basic foundational processes and procedures for a startup organization? Obviously QuickBooks is one great one, but do you have a favorite resource that you could direct us to? Yeah, one of my favorite ways to get up to speed on accounting, and I don't know who this person is, I have no affiliation with her at all, but this woman named Lisa London has a book called QuickBooks for Small Nonprofits, QuickBooks Online, and I'm gonna try to find the link. You can get on Amazon, QuickBooks Online, for small nonprofits. Her name is Alisa London, and she creates a book designed, I don't know this person, but she writes a really good book for people that are not accountants that need to understand how to use the software. And more importantly, like any software, she teaches you 
why you need to do it this way so that you can get donor acknowledgement letters, that you can track restricted funds, that you can set it up the right way in order to get the best useful information possible. So that's a really good book. And then if you look at that book and you said, okay, this makes sense conceptually, I'm not sure how to navigate the software to do that. Honestly, I go to YouTube. It's really easy to say, how do I track restricted grants in QuickBooks? And you'll get a lot of YouTube videos that will show you like how to walk through that. So I have a question coming in from Chijo who had to jump out, but hopefully he'll listen to this afterwards, which is he's a new first-time board member and he hasn't been through orientation yet. So what are the top two or three things that he should be aware of as he steps into his new role? I think that as a new board member, understanding where the money is coming from and where it's going, and even at a high level, and understanding the different programs, what makes up the organization, just like any business. If you were going to go in and help advise any business, you would want to do a tour of the business. You would want to understand how do you make money? How many employees do you, what are your biggest costs? What is the biggest risk to your operation, right? And that's what I do with board orientation. I go over the financial statements, which you don't really necessarily need to pour over the financial statements, but I give a really high level. These are the four distinct programs. Most of our money comes from the state. That's a little, that's either stable or not. I mean, every state budget is tight right now. These are our main events that we raise money. These are our main expenses. We have a lot of campuses, so we have a lot of overhead or we don't, uh, primarily payroll or what have you. And really just understanding is the organization stable? I mean, do they have a lot of liabilities? Do they have back payroll taxes? That's an important thing to ask. You'd be surprised how many board members don't know that's going on. Do we have a lot of debt? Have we historically had to borrow money to pay for short-term operating? Those sort of questions, just kind of understanding what is the flow of money coming in or out and how do they earn it? And who's kind of involved in that process? And ask if they get an audit, ask how it's gone. On my calls with prospective clients, I ask on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most painful, where are you at with respect to your audit? No judgment here. I just need to hear the truth. And sometimes it's quite pleasant and sometimes it's a complete disaster. So that's helpful to know as well. All right, we're going to try to get to the last couple of questions here. Bobby came in with a question and actually this might be more of a fundraising question than an accounting question. I'm also starting a nonprofit now, and I'm, I'm doing the fiscal sponsorship for the first two years. I thought that was going to buy me time for board members. To, I have an advisory board now to find the right board members, but apparently I have to incorporate now anyway for purposes of like liability insurance and mm-hmm. things like that. Traditionally, I've worked with boards that everybody's a millionaire and there's a minimum required amount of giving. It doesn't necessarily mean they're giving that. Mm-hmm. Can you have a board member who doesn't have come from wealth, but they believe in the mission, they know the population, and the requirements be different for somebody who may, may come on with a lot of wealth and believe in the mission, and they're, they're going to maybe give you the money directly, or, and then you have somebody who can just help with uh, fundraising activities and be that voice to, that connects with the community that you're serving. I've got thoughts about that, which is, Bobby, I'm really a firm believer that every board member has to give to the best of their capacity. And so obviously there are some board members that you're going to recruit. Like, for example, when I ran my nonprofit, I had teachers who obviously were not in a position to give a huge amount of money, but I really believe that everybody should make the nonprofit at least within their top three philanthropic priorities, which is going to look different for different people. But if they absolutely will not give or will not be involved in fundraising in any way, then they are on an advisory committee. They don't need to be on the board. 
Tasha, what would you say? Yeah, I would definitely say exclusively limiting to high net wealth people is going to be challenging because you'll find as you continue the organization, you'll have a lot of different requirements that people expect of you to have on the board. So for example, specific skills, they'll look for, do you have legal advice? Do you have HR experience? Do you have IT? Do you have facilities? Do you have programmatic experience and expertise? Do you have all of this different matrix of all the needs the organization needs to be successful? And not only do you have that, but then you also have diversity when it comes to age and their demographics, racial, where they live within the community, right? And so if you limited it only to high net wealth individuals, it would be really challenging. Like, so for example, I work with a lot of social service agencies and they have a focus to try to have people that have gone through their programs on the board. And that's not going to be easy to do if we exclude <laughs> to millionaires because people going through those programs are not always going to be millionaires, right? So yeah, there's definitely, I think, a tipping point for which you can expand your board. I agree that every board member should give. What that looks like for each person is probably going to be different. And I also agree with if you have a board member that is at an opportunity where they're talking to someone and they're thinking of, I'd really like to get introduced to a great nonprofit. I have some planned giving I want to do. I need to leave someone in my will or something to that effect. You want your board members to think of you top of mind. And I've been on some boards where the board members are not really engaged and you have to wonder if they had an opportunity, would they think to talk about you and your mission? And that's really important. So I think a good compromise of all of those things but as I mentioned before, in my experience, a lot of times you have those that write substantial checks. I mean, everybody should write some kind of check, but substantial checks. And then you also have those that do a lot of the work, whether they help with policies and procedures or they do some different negotiations, like the finance the bankers and investment managers and writing policies. It's a lot of roll up the sleeves and get work done as well. Or fundraising committee could include hosting events and building guest lists and things like that. So it definitely needs to be a mix, but everyone should have an expectation to give. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Okay, last question coming in from Lena. Hi, I was just had a quick follow up to that last question about sort of different levels of giving on the board. Right now, we're kind of shifting the board. We're in a transitional phase, I'd say. So we have a lot of older long-term supporters of the organization, and we're really trying to recruit uh, new members with higher capacity. And so we're struggling a little bit with narrating, changing the give-get expectations for new people coming in and sort of recruiting with that expectation really set at a higher level, but still obviously honoring the people who've been around for a while and came in with a lower expectation. Like it is, or is there a sort of some strategy around that that I'm not seeing to do that well? I I'd love to jump in here because I actually, I went through this process. So (laughs) in the process of my tenureship of 12 years as an executive director, we eventually established a $30,000 give get of which $10,000 had to be give. But obviously for some of our previous board members, that was not going to be tenable for them. So I think we did two things. The thing one is that we just said it out loud for all new members. And we were pretty transparent with our new members that there was a sea change and that they were going to be part of the cultural change. And then the other part was we just had very frank conversations with our previous board members about, okay, maybe 30 isn't what you can do, but what is it that you can do and can commit to? And actually what we found, interestingly, was once we set the give-get at a higher level, a lot of the older board members actually stepped 
plate, even though they said that they couldn't or wouldn't. I mean, it's amazing what a little bit of competition can do. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. I think it's both about being super clear and kind of just saying what it is and then having conversations that are very clear with folks. Tosh, what would you say? Yeah, I think sometimes we're hesitant to ask. And I think we make assumptions on what people are willing or able to give without being really clear with the board members on what you need those funds for, what your challenges are, especially for not having deep conversations about the finances of the organization or reinvestments or expansion that we want to do. I know we might talk about that at the board meetings, but sometimes the financial issues are glossed over a little bit. And it's really interesting how I've been part of organizations that have longtime givers that we've just never asked them to increase the gift. And I think sometimes we're nervous to do that, but really that's what a great fundraising is, is to ask people to kind of push themselves out of their comfort zone a little bit sometimes if they really believe in what the mission is. So I guess my question is really, is there clear resistance and not just a one or two time situation, or is it kind of we don't want to rock the boat or ruffle the feathers because these people have been faithful to us for a long time. And, and maybe they might be a lot more receptive to it with the right message than we realize. So I'm all in favor of having those honest conversations with them and the expectations for what new board members would be required to do. And also share information with them about how it's been successful with other organizations. And also as a leader of the organization, what you hope to do with the expansion of the fundraising and get their buy-in and excitement behind it. Thank you. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Takesha, this is a juicy one. You want to jump in here and ask your question? I'm asking because I've been in a situation where I've been on a board where I was not able to give nearly to the level that I guess maybe others would. However, I have lots of community connections. I work well with elected officials, things of that nature. However, I did give like when it came time to go to the annual gala and a couple of other events that we did have. But my question is, how do you suggest communicating the varied levels? Should you be asked like during a board meeting about people giving in different amounts? And should this information be included in the bylaws or roles or responsibilities? This is about transparency. Tasha, do you want to take that one? I have thoughts, but. I have thoughts too. And, and I'll just share my experience because I'm a CPA by training, although I'm very interested in the fundraising, as you can imagine. Uh, my clients always say, it's never enough money for you. And no, it's not. So I would say that in my experience and where I think it's really successful is creating a culture where we talk about board participation in fundraising, individual conversations for what they can commit to, whether it's through their business or whether it's through personal or through connections, is had offline in other conversations privately. And then also what I've seen really effective is getting the board to have conversations within board meetings about, we would really like connections to these particular corporations. Does anybody know anybody? Can we make introductions? And then also I've seen where board members have an expectation to recruit, certainly to fill tables and that sort of thing. And make it to your point, whether you can't do it, you can bring people and introduce them to what we're doing that will hopefully decide to contribute financially. But I do find having the conversation at a minimum publicly at the board, that the expectation from our funders is that we have 100% board participation and this is where we're at. And then certainly following up either you as the leader of the organization or even fellow board members that are maybe responsible, I don't know what the official committee might be, but if it's a governance committee or the fundraising committee has those conversations with the individual board members about, hey, we haven't received your commitment for this year. Last year, you were able to give this amount of money. Would you like to honor that gift or... Add another 10% to just see what they say. <laughs> Maria, what's your thoughts? 
Yeah, I would 100% agree. I mean, I think it's a little bit hard to have a blanket statement because all boards are different, Mm -hmm. but I generally default to clear is kind. So if you have a board member, so I go back to my example of we had teachers on my board and obviously teachers were not going to be giving $30,000. But to my earlier point to Bobby, everyone must give something. And so having that conversation on the front end about what is their contribution for the year and then what are they going to be doing to participate in fundraising above and beyond their personal gift is really helpful. And then accountability, earlier point, Tasha, is really key. Now, Takesha, I think there's like a big debate going on between people who believe in a really clear give get and people who say something more like to the top of your capacity or whatever it may be. I generally like to have a number, but I also am very clear with the board that the number for some people is actually the floor, not the ceiling, right? So $30,000 for some people, a small gift. Well, again, that's another opportunity to have a really clear conversation offline with them about what their contribution could look like for the year. But what was helpful for me around thinking about a $30,000 give get is it helped me to sort through the types of board members that I would be talking to and explicitly what we would be talking about. Does that help, Takesha? Yes, thank you very much. I guess the answer is it depends, but Claire is kind. Quickly, I've been on the end of working with the ED and I'm scheduling meetings with board members and I already know what the conversations are going to be. So you're setting up these conversations with all these different board members one-on-one, but then what is told or what is said when everybody's together, if that one board member, because there's always one, well, what is everybody else giving? Or Mm -hmm. what is our general idea on what the expectation is? So that's pretty much kind of where that question came from. But thank you. This is some juicy and very helpful information. Thank you. (laughs) Great. Thanks. So we've got two minutes to go. Tasha, bring us home. Anything that you want to leave us with? I know you had a resource that you recommended. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any final thoughts. I think really just if you haven't developed some onboarding materials for what you need and what you expect board members to do, whether fiduciary meaning keeping your I's dotted and T's crossed with respect to all things accounting, financial, and compliance related, and then also money-wise in general, not just managing the funds, but bringing in the funds. I think first things first is just develop those expectations and communicate those really clearly. And then the last thing is, as you start to think about adding more complexity to your organization or you start expanding, I do have a download that I created. It's free. Um, I have the link. I don't know if you dropped it in there, if I can drop that in there, that if you all want to ask questions about some of these things, you can certainly take a look at that and jogging your brain a little bit more for what are the things that you should have or shouldn't have with respect to your accounting and how can your board members help with that. Muted. Thanks so much, Tasha. Thanks to everyone. So where can people find you on the interwebs, Tasha? Uh, Check out my website, thecharitycfo.com. Great. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. And Tasha, thank you so much. This is super informative.